0: Amen. Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue now our study in God's word, this book of beginnings. Tonight, we look again at the fall of mankind into ruin. Christianity is chiefly about good news, but best appreciated in light of the bad news. And unless you're convinced you're sick, you won't seek the physician and you won't take his medicine. So tonight we turn to, again, the bitter news of humanity's rebellion against God in Genesis chapter 3. We'll pick up the reading back at verse 1, covering again verses 1 through 7 and continuing on through verse 13 tonight. Let me invite you to hear now the word of our God. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Amen. This is God's eternal and everlasting word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we bow before you tonight. We pray that you would have mercy on our souls, that you would enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of the truth, that you would hold Jesus before us and even encourage us, but that you would teach us to understand even ourselves correctly in the way that you see us and Do it for our good, we pray, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When we hear the story, do we see ourselves in it? To be sure, the Bible presents Adam as more than just any man or every man. Uh, It's not an allegorical myth that just happens to say something true about all people everywhere. No, Adam was a real person and he was the first man and he was the representative head of all mankind. Contrasting Adam and Christ, the Apostle Paul later will say in 1 Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ Christ shall all be made alive. So Adam represented us all in the garden of paradise. When Adam fell out of God's favor, we fell in him and with him. And by contrast, when Christ came and represented all who trust in him, he succeeded where Adam failed. He he obeyed where Adam had disobeyed. And what these two men did, they did for us, And in our place, they are like two giants standing before God. And they have giant, massive belts wrapped around their bodies. And they're as tall as mountains. And all of us are hooked either onto the belt of Adam or onto the belt of Christ. In union with Adam, simply by being his descendant and then coming into this world We receive condemnation and death. But in union with Christ, believers receive pardon and acceptance and life. The Bible says Adam represents us as Christ now represents all who believe. But the Bible also says that Adam is like us, or rather, we are like Adam. And that's what we want to think about tonight. Do you see yourself in this story? That you bear the family resemblance. That's our perspective from which we'll tackle this passage, having looked at it last week from the other perspective. Now, I want you to consider Adam and Eve and us. And I want you to consider three things with me tonight. I want you to consider the complexity of sin at work in your life. Verses 1 to 6. I want you to think about God's compassion on sinners From verses 8 and 9. And then I want you to think about the consequences of sin. In your life. From verses 7 through 13. Those three things in the first place. Would you consider with me the complexity of human sin at work in your experience? What what was the sin of Adam and Eve, Eve here in the garden? I think I said Adam and Eden almost. Some have suggested that taking... A bite of forbidden fruit was a euphemism for sexual sin of some kind. But, of course, that cannot be what this is about. They had, after all, already been married and invited and even commanded by God to enjoy one another intimately. They were, after all, to procreate. So that's not what's going on here. There's something else going on here. And it's not simple. It's complex. It involves unbelief. And mistrust. It involves pride and ingratitude. It involves desire and disobedience. It's complex. And I want to say at the outset, before we look at those things, that that should caution us away from offering simplistic solutions to what ails us. Stopping sin or changing your life in a way that honors God involves far more than, you know, just saying no to drugs or I promise to remain pure until marriage or dropping bad habits and picking up good habits or, or educating people out of their ignorance so they'll be smart and everything will be okay or legislating every bad thing out of existence and with a heavy hand governing to make sure that happens. Oh, no, friends. What ails the world and us is far more complex and requires something greater. And so I want you to notice some of the complexity of that. Notice in the first place what's going on with Adam and Eve here in the garden. There is unbelief and doubt about God's goodness and about God's generosity going on here. God had invited Adam and Eve to trust him. The forbidden tree was an opportunity to trust God, to agree with God that what they truly needed, God had supplied, that what was truly good for them, God had provided, to trust God, that God was a good and loving and generous and open-handed and wise father who delighted to give them the kingdom. And Satan turns around and he asks a question at at verse 1. It's designed to make Eve and Adam question God's goodness. Has God really been generous to you is what he's saying. Did God say you shall not eat of any tree? Satan knows that that's not what God had said, but he's trying to raise the suspicion in her heart that God is somehow, despite all that he's given them, that God is being miserly, that he's tight, uh, that he's, he's unkind, he's withholding. And here I think is the root of the matter. Strip away everything else and you'll find that when you have sinned, there's a lot going on. One of the things is you did what you did, said what you said, desired what you desired, because you were not content with God and his provision for you. And you did not believe God had been good to you and you would not trust him. So you sought. To increase yourself or advantage yourself or make yourself look good or feel good or provide for your own security and provide for your own happiness and provide for your own status. For example, when we find children tearing down other children, we often find that the same child is trying to build himself up, make himself feel good or look good by comparison, by belittling the other one. And there's a whole lot of insecurity going on in that behavior. That child doesn't already feel significant. They don't already know that they are secure in their parents' love or ultimately God's love. And so they rip others down to aim to build themselves up or take the issue of lust at work in our lives. So often our satisfactions of lust flow from mistrust of God. We say in our hearts, God hasn't met my needs. God's way, God's provision is inadequate. We say there's no joy or true life to be found if I'm single and celibate, or we say there's There's no one, not even my God-given spouse who can meet my needs. And so we doubt God's plan and God's goodness and God's wisdom and God's provision. And we say, I'll take care of myself or take sinful anger at work in our experience. We're stewing over some trouble. And if we'll admit it, we're angry at God because we don't think he's taking care of us. And we're angry at others because they failed to be a better substitute for God. And we resent someone for failing us because we expected them to come through for us, perhaps in a way that only God can. There's a whole complex of unbelief and doubt and mistrust in God's goodness and generosity and provision going on when we say it. But there's also pride. There's uh, pride going on here. And Satan's appeal to them, as we've seen previously, is this. God doesn't want you to be like him. God is small and he is protecting his turf. And you know you deserve better than that. And then the desire to exalt themselves over God became insatiable eat and you will be like God the Satan the, the serpent lied and they believe that Eve did and not content not content with being made in the image of God being God's crowning achievement in creation and his representative on the earth so that when people looked at you they were to see God the image of God in man the the, the physical representation of the deity ruling In this world, instead of that, they desire to be equal with God. We deserve better than God gave us, we think. We should be God. What arrogance, what pride is at work in us, friends. And then there's ingratitude. I mean, think of what they had before the fall. God had given them an abundance. In a garden, in a place called paradise or luxury, God had made them rich. They were born rich god had given them food and taste buds to enjoy that food flowers and trees a delight to the eye and the enjoyment of life a friend and a spouse intimacy and sex meaningful work without drudgery but not slavery because they got a day of rest and seven and a half weeks of vacation a year and all of this they got with god's blessing and the blessing of God himself in friendship with them. They had all of that and more. And they said to him, it's not enough. We want more. That's what they said. What they did not do is pray and say, thank you. That is a terrible part of sin, no matter how good you think you have been otherwise, friends. Imagine there's an old woman. She's a widow. She's extremely poor. She has one child. And as her son grows up, she taught him how to live. I want you to always tell the truth. I want you to help the poor. I want you to always keep your promises. And I want you to work very hard, she said to him. And the son listened to her. And so he grows up and he goes off to college with the little money that she has saved over the years. And he moves away and he graduates. And as the years go by, He never speaks to her. He never calls her. He never writes her a letter except for the occasional Christmas card when he thinks of it. However, he does everything she told him to do. He tells the truth. He helps the poor. He keeps his promises. He works very hard. What do you think about this guy? Is he okay? Is he a good person? No, that's terrible. It's wrong. We would all stand there and say that. And that's true on a cosmic level, friends. Whatever good you think you have done, your heart has been ungrateful. That's part of it. It's in the mix. There's ingratitude. And Satan is constantly, in our experience, minimizing what you have and maximizing what you don't have. Always whispering in your ear, look what you don't have. And, oh, what you have, it's really really nothing. Oh, did did God say you can't eat, Satan says? And she says, no, we can eat. But is that what God had said? No, God had said you may freely eat. But she, she didn't emphasize the freeness and the generosity of God. Let me ask you, the last time you got mad at your spouse if you're married, did you remember All the years that they have loved you and all the ways that they have been faithful to you. It's tempting to feel sorry for yourself and to focus on what you don't have. Satan wants you to do that. This is a reminder, too, by the way, why it's important to come to worship every week. What do we do in worship? we remind ourselves that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and that we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us that is unspoiled and unfading and secured by our Savior and that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. And Satan tries to convince you that the one thing God hasn't given you Is the one good thing. And the one thing God has withheld. Is the one thing that would make you complete. If you had that you say to yourself I'd be God. So he stokes our ingratitude at the blessings he's given. There's unbelief. There's pride. There's ingratitude. And then there's desire. Eve saw it verse 6. And she desired it. And being deceived about it, she didn't resist it. Adam, however, undeceived, as Paul makes clear in the New Testament, didn't even put up a fight. She thought they would at least be improved by it. Adam knew that they wouldn't. He was not deceived. And left to the freedom of his own will, Adam chose disobedience. And he and all his descendants became slaves to their sinful desires. And you and I entered this world a slave to our sinful desires. Now, when you talk about history, as I'm about to, you never know if the story told is, is exactly true. I mean, okay, George Washington was president. We know that's true. But sometimes you hear these stories and you just don't know. In Thomas Costain's history, The Three Edwards, he describes the life of Reynolds. The third, a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. He was grossly overweight. He was commonly called by his, lick, his Latin nickname Crassus, which means fat. And after a violent quarrel with his younger brother, his younger brother led a successful revolt against him and then captured Reynold, but didn't kill him, and instead he built a room around him inside the Newkirk Castle and promised him that he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. That would have not been difficult for most people since the room had basically several windows and a normal sized door and none was locked or barred. The problem was Reynolds size and his love of food to regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight But Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, he grew fatter. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. Reynolds stayed in that room 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. By then, his health was so ruined that he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. And I want to say to you, dear friends, whatever your besetting sins, your recurring sins, there is some appeal, some satisfaction it itches, some pleasure it promises It may be the pleasure of feeling superior to others and so you gossip and tear them down. It may be the pleasure you get by punishing others and so you hold a grudge and you retaliate. It may be the pleasure of being accepted by others and so you go with the crowd. Some pleasure or satisfaction. Satan and the flesh will show you a thousand reasons why it will be good for you to disobey God. Often it's the pleasure and satisfaction of going your own way, living by your own rules, and so we choose disobedience. Now James in James 1 verses 13 to 15 cautions us when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So there's desire going on, friends, in this complex of sin. And then there's rebellion. Against the clear command of God, Adam 8, and he commits cosmic treason and he joins in the devil's rebellion. And as uh, Professor Donald McLeod says, we should all take note here, friends, of Satan's strategy at this point. Satan got at Adam through Eve. The attack on Adam was not frontal, he says. It was devious. And so often, temptation comes to us in the same way, through those whom we respect and love. More solemnly still, he says, we ourselves often become temptations to those we love. Whenever we command affection, we have it in our power to become a spiritual danger to others, as Eve did to Adam. Well, anyway, friends, we see this whole complex of sin going on. The question is often asked, what was the first sin? Was it it when she actually took and ate Calvin argues that behind that is this whole complex of unbelief giving birth to pride, giving birth to wicked desire and to all the other things that happen here, friends. There is not a quick, simple solution to your sin in your experience. Now, the second thing I want you to see, however is God's compassion on sinners. The kind of compassion we can't live without. Then in the cool of the day, it says in verse 8, and that may be when the gentle breezes of evening began, God comes to the garden looking for Adam and Eve. What does it mean that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Well, E.J. Young, great Old Testament scholar, argues that this, very properly, that God is the infinite one, and he is a spirit, and in order to reveal himself to man in an intimate way, he did appear during Old Testament times, sometimes in human form. Such appearances were called theophanies. And those theophanies found their culmination eventually in the incarnation of the second person of the Son of God when the Lord of Glory took flesh himself. But these, <clears throat> this may be in the garden, one of those Old Testament experiences of the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord in human appearance. In most loving and tender condescension, God appeared in the form of a man so that he might speak to man as friend to friend. Anyway, God is, is present in the garden. They hear the sound of him. And this is not just God on a stroll. This is God on a mission. Here is God, the very first missionary in the Bible. He is fully aware of all that has happened. God is, after all, omniscient. Nothing here caught him by surprise. The question, Adam, where are you, is for Adam's benefit, not for God's information. Adam, do you know where you are? I'm your father, and I love you, and I'm here in the garden, and you're not here like you usually are. Do you realize how changed your situation is, Adam? And this question, friends, marks the beginning of redemptive history, we might say. A history which is not the story of people in search of God, but of God in search of people. It's the story of Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. And so... God comes to them. Now, God could have done what? He could have zapped them right on the spot and started over with a new couple. He could have waited a while, let them stew in their own juice, let them hide behind those silly fig leaves, cowering in fear every time they hear a noise in the bushes. He could have done that. Let them pay for what they've done, God could have said. But the implication is that God came quickly when Adam and Eve sinned. And that was pure grace. He didn't come down in anger yelling, Adam, front and center for your court martial and execution. And he didn't come down with a big old lecture, Adam, you have blown it so badly. How could you be so stupid? That's not how he treated him. But he comes to Adam graciously, wooing Adam out of his hiding place, patiently, lovingly, saying to Adam, making him think, you're hiding in a tree, Adam, And look at those silly fig leaves you're wearing. Why are you there is what God is making him think. God is wooing him because he's gracious. That's God's compassion on sinners. No sinner, friend seeks after God. God seeks hiding sinners. He is the hound of heaven and he hunts us down in love. That's the second thing I want you to see. The last thing is this, finally. The consequences of sin in verses 7 through 13. Let me highlight five or six things. We'll run through them very briefly. Notice in the first place, as we said last week, there's shame. They had been naked and unashamed. Now they are naked and they are ashamed. They want to cover up. They sought to cover themselves with these silly tree leaves. They desire to fix their own problem. But only God could fix it. They couldn't fix themselves. And then there's the desire, uh, the urge to hide from God. They don't want to see or be seen by God. They're guilty and they know it. And like a child who knows he's done wrong, who's hiding somewhere in the house so he's not confronted, so in their guilt they are hiding. And you can run as the saying goes, but you can't hide from an all-seeing God. But they have this urge to hide. And thirdly, there's, there's denial and depravity going on here as a consequence. Where are you, God says? And notice what the man doesn't say. He doesn't say, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I disobeyed you, and I hid myself. He doesn't mention his disobedience. He doesn't admit any wrongdoing. I was afraid and because I was naked and I hid myself. His focus is not on his sin, but the consequence of his sin, like we all do, all the time. We feel caught and we feel bad and we're embarrassed. And we're not really repentant about the evil that we have done. We're just upset that we got caught by it and the pain that it brings. So he's still trying to avoid dealing with the real issue. Who told you that you were naked is, I think, God trying to get Adam to be honest about his sin. Son, confess. (laughs) Your eyes have become now open in a way they were never meant to be. You've sinned. That's what God's trying to get him to confess. Tell me your condition, Adam. But there's no confession, there's no repentance, there's no asking for forgiveness. He doesn't run to his father and fall on his feet and say, I'm so sorry. You told me not to do that, please forgive me. There's none of that. And so you see depravity in the heart, a condition which is unwilling to honestly repent. Even when we can see our sins and we experience our sins, we feel the guilt, we feel the shame. When we're confronted by God. We're made aware of. We do anything and everything to deceive and to evade and not to own up. We refuse to confess and change. That is depravity, friends. And then there's fear. I was afraid, he says. That's the first mention of fear in the Bible. And instead of running to God like the child who runs to meet his father at the door when he got home from work which sadly lasts, you know, in elementary school and my teenagers have quit doing it a long time ago, as I did also towards my father, not calling anybody out, forgive me. Little kids, little kids, oh, they, they run to meet daddy. They run to meet mommy when you've been gone a long time, often, ordinarily, if things are good. That isn't happening here At all. I was afraid. Not because God had changed, but because I had changed. That's Adam. That's us. And then there's isolation. Did you notice his reply to God? I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Where's Eve in any of that? (laughs) He's not even thinking about her. There's no we it's every man for himself now. It's all about me. I have a friend, a mom, who was playing Uno with her family, and her son had won two or three times, and her daughter was getting frustrated, as most siblings would. And the dad said to the daughter, It's, it's okay. What's the most important thing? Hoping for having fun. <laughs> the seven-year-old daughter's answer, to What's the most important thing? Me. (laughs) That's Adam. That's you. That's me. It was not good for the man to be alone. God made a, a helper fit for him. And now he has thrown her to the wind. I, I, I. Me, me, me. That's us. Alienated from one another. Only thinking about ourselves. And then there's finally blame shifting friends when he finally gets to his response adam what does he say well the woman you gave me (laughs) she gave it to me and i you know just a couple weeks ago we heard him singing her praises bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and now he's singing in the blues. The woman is what's wrong with this world. <laughs> I'm the victim here. You can't blame me, can you? That's Adam's attitude. And oh, by the, way, by the way, the woman you made, it's her fault, it's your fault. And so God turns to the woman. And how does Eve respond? <laughs> Just like her husband. The serpent deceived me. It's the serpent's fault, she says. The serpent you made. It's God's fault. She won't take personal responsibility. Adam won't take personal responsibility. So do you see what we see, friends? Sin, shame, guilt, hiding from God, denial, depravity, fear of God, isolation from one another, alienation against one another, blame shifting, and no one takes personal responsibility. Can anyone here doubt that these people are your people? (laughs) They're your ancestors. Can you honestly say you don't see the family resemblance here? Is this not us? And aren't we always sowing fig leaves to cover ourselves? Aren't we always running away from our problems and hoping they'll go away? Or trying to convince ourselves that everything's alright, it's really not that bad, and everything will be okay in the end, really. But we aren't all right, and we can't fix ourselves, and it will take God to undo what we have done. And he did it, friends, in Jesus. In his last hours, Jesus goes to a garden in Gethsemane, a garden of trees. And he is found not hiding in those trees, friends, but facing God in the trees, amidst the trees. And he asks his friends to come with him, to wait for him, to pray for him. And they fail him. He's isolated. He's alienated. They've alienated themselves from him. And Then he's betrayed. Judas points him out. He's the one. He's the troublemaker, blame-shifting Judas. But Jesus doesn't defend himself, he's arrested, he's stripped naked, he is publicly exposed to shame, and he doesn't defend himself, he entrusts himself to God. And he takes responsibility for our sins, he takes the blame, and he bears our shame, and he faces God, and he endures the judgment of God against sin, and he gets what sin deserves and he becomes estranged from the father for the first time in eternity my God my God why have you forsaken me and the father has abandoned his son to the cross and smashed his son with what sin deserves so that we need no longer hide so that we can confess and say father I have sinned Please forgive me so that we can be restored to fellowship with God in and through Jesus Christ. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for Jesus. We thank you and I pray you would teach our souls to trust in him. And that you would forgive us again all the filth of our self-love and sin. And that you would make us quick and easy repenters who know the face of our Father is full of mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.